Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 6th of February 2023, a little bit after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bring us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, Mark Anderson from the USA, and we have Vanessa Beely. In Damascus. So uh, let's get straight on here with the uh, Turkish uh, Syrian earthquake. Uh, absolutely horrendous events overnight. Uh, I believe there's been a second earthquake this morning, uh, Vanessa, but uh, we can see on screen the epicenter of this. This has had horrendous uh, impact on people. Mm, um, basically at around 4 a.m. Can you hear me this time? Yes, yes. Yes, we're good. Um, around 4 a.m. Uh, there was an earthquake that was registered at its highest at 8.1. Uh, most reports are coming in with 7.8, but still it was... I think the strongest earthquake for um, more than 80 years in the region. Um, this is actually CCTV footage from Lebanon, which is a long way from the epicenter in uh, Turkey itself, which shows, uh, one, how long the quake went on for and how powerful it was even this far from the epicenter. So in um, Syria itself, the devastation has been absolutely unbelievable. Um, in Aleppo, in Idlib, in, in Latakia on the coastal region, this is a building collapsing in Aleppo. There were several videos like this. Of course, what people need to remember that is in the last 10 years, the terrorists backed by uh, NATO member states and the Gulf states and Israel had... Uh, uh, tunnels under many of these areas which had itself uh, damaged the foundations of these houses and made them extremely fragile. Of course, the effects of water could also um, cause structural damage to these houses. So therefore, an earthquake of this scale was automatically going to bring down these houses on top of people. Um, the dead in Turkey and Syria is well over a thousand and is rising on an hourly basis as they find more bodies under the rubble. Um, thousands have been injured and again that number will be rising on an hourly basis. In Syria, the rescue attempts are hampered by we have had incredibly cold, stormy, wet, windy weather um, which is also uh, created further misery for the people that have been rescued or made homeless by the by the quake itself there was uh, there, there were a number of aftershocks also that caused further damage um, and then there was a second earthquake as you pointed out which i think registered at 6.3 um, in in turkey itself in in ankara and this is a road uh, i can't remember where it's from and two but it's in turkey um, showing uh, the extensive structural damage even to a relatively modern and well-built um, main highway like this. Um, of course, what is hampering also the rescue attempts in Syria are um, Western sanctions because many of the hospitals um, have not been able to update their equipment. They are not able to um, cope with the influx of injured. There are many local initiatives now, private hospitals opening their doors and offering free treatments, private organizations preparing to um, provide free housing um, for civilians, for the thousands of civilians that will have been again made homeless having survived the war. A friend of mine in Hamar 
told me last night she's basically gone through 10 years of war and mortars, her husband being injured, almost losing his leg. And she told me that last night was the most terrifying night of her life. Most people, even in Damascus, most people left their houses because they were terrified that structurally unsound buildings um, were going to collapse around them, as I said. Uh, has been the target of um, you know, a military war, an economic war, a political war, a media war for 11 years. These structures are not sound to begin with. We're going through a freezing cold winter with no electricity and no heating, and now this. It's absolutely... I, I, I don't actually know how the Syrian people are going to, to come through this. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, just before you go, Vanessa, I just wanted to bring this on screen. Mm. This was uh, the, the BBC this morning because never, you know, I, th I think this is pretty <clears throat> cynical, actually. But, uh, you know, even under mm. these circumstances, the BBC attempting to score effectively political points here. We just play play the video. Here we see a, a White Helmets video, very similar to the types of White Helmets videos that we saw in Syria during the war. You know, the child being rescued from under the rubble. Uh, and the, the BBC had, uh, you know, some white helmets. I can't remember who it was. Uh, a, f a representative speaking on the on the main news this morning on the radio. So, so uh, you know, I thought this was a bit cynical by them to be pushing this type of uh, narrative at this time. Yeah, and absolutely. And of course, what is happening? The white helmets themselves, although they are not um, the, the government of Syria, have issued a state of emergency in Idlib. They're calling for humanitarian funding to come into Idlib, which is effectively controlled by Al Qaeda. There is no response uh, to the government of Damascus from Western governments to to promise aid or or humanitarian assistance. Um, for Syrian civilians, the majority of which who have been affected are in the government-controlled areas. So the White Helmets are, are capitalizing on this event, of course, to put their own profile back into the limelight. And of course, they're being supported by the BBC. The BBC has been their number one um, PR agent uh, in the UK since their inception. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, Vanessa. Okay, any thoughts, Brian? Well, it's it's terrible for all the people concerned and uh, really politics should be dropped out of it and we should be concentrating on the humanitarian aid aspect. But of course, the uh, BBC is never, ever going to miss an opportunity to get in its political agenda. It, it likes the death. It doesn't care about the people. Okay, let's move over to Ukraine then. And uh, well, first of all, Ukraine seems to be replacing their defense minister. Uh, so the chaos within the Ukrainian government continues. Let's just uh, uh, bring a little bit of text uh, on screen here. Uh, so uh, the majority leader of the Ukrainian parliament said on Sunday that uh, uh, Kirill uh, Budinov, who's currently the head of the U Ukrainian intelligence services, I believe, is be becoming the defense minister. Uh, and it's being done to strengthen military industrial co cooperation, which is absolutely logical, he said. What do you think about that? Uh, well, if we look at uh, Ukraine overall, Mike, what we've got is a dictatorship. And I think what's happening is Zelensky is conducting a purge. He's doing a purge because the West has said, if you don't get rid of the corruption, you're not going to get the money. You won't get the weapons. So this is now a full blown dictatorship about around Zelensky running. And some of these men are going to be pushed to one side if they're if they're mates of Zelensky, he's not going to get rid of them co completely. Um, 
Reznikov is going to move over, uh, we believe, into justice. justice. He's going to become Minister of Justice. So he's got to be pushed aside because uh, he's also said one or two things that I think upset Zelensky about the conduct of the war. But as we'll see in just a minute, um, it's becoming very clear what's happening. Have you got anything further on nope, that? This nope. one might. Right. OK, let's bring on the... Uh, the man himself. Now, this goes back a couple of days ago. I've chosen the Kiev Post so that we can see what's actually being said in Ukraine as resignation rumours intensify. Well, it's all happened. Defence Minister pledges to help successor achieve victory of Ukraine. And uh, this is the embedded headline from the Kiev Post. Ukraine's secret service exposes the embezzlement of funds allocated for food supply for defense forces. So how cynical do you have, you know, I mean, you've got troops, whoever they are, fighting and dying on the front line. And while they're on the front line, somebody is working behind to steal, steal their, food. their supplies. And this is the nation state that the BBC runs through BBC Media Action, is helping run their state media, covering all of this up. It's an utter disgrace. And we should remember that it was well known the corruption in Ukraine before the war started, and yet the BBC still helped this regime put its propaganda machine in place. Utterly disgusting. But if we look at what uh, Reznikov said, it's one person, the commander in chief, uh, who decides whether I will be defence minister or not. So he's laid it bare. This is simply now a dictatorship around Zelensky. It's Zelensky who decides who stays and who goes. There's no other pretenses at a democracy. This is a vicious police state supported, of course, by the BBC. Uh, he goes on to say this, or he did go on to say this, I'm convinced that our international partners have faith in the victory of Ukraine. It will remain and they will continue to support us. There are still planes on my wish list to Santa. Yes, this is an adult speaking here. There are still war planes on my wish list to Santa. I believe in the victory of Ukraine and I will do everything for this. And when he says everything for this, he means it because it doesn't matter whether it's illegal, it's corruption, it's bullying, whatever it is, they are prepared to do it. So I've called this Santa and a pack of lies. And the fact that the BBC supports this disgraceful regime in Ukraine is, is a crime in itself, I think. Um, Alex, have you got any thoughts? I'd like to point out that uh, the tipped successor, as of that leak yesterday, um, Kirill Budanov, who's a major general, uh, is in fact map man. Uh, he wasn't the overall head of intelligence until this appointment. Uh, he was just the head of the uh, military intelligence department, a notorious hard man. He's uh, served his country in the front line since the beginning of the uh, 2014 phase of the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, been wounded in that capacity. But he's the man who, with a smouldering look on his face, uh, as you'll remember from previous UK column news episodes, invited journalists in and showed them uh, a map with a broad felt tip pen or Sharpie for our American listeners, marking out how Russia was going to be parceled up. It seems that Budanov has been promoted on the basis of that map. We have an article forthcoming from a Swede on the significance of that map for Scandinavia. Reznikov is one of the more softly spoken men. I'm not sure of the constitutional position. I haven't seen in Ukraine's constitution 
that the president really is commander in chief, even in the US. This is a, a debatable point. Uh, Congress has actually to award him that title for a given war. Uh, so this may just be flowery language. Possibly Reznikov uh, got the chop because we have to be very careful about numbers because we're talking about people's lives and unconfirmed numbers. But it is said by some quite reputable people, such as uh, uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, that Reznikov may have told the Americans on a Washington visit very recently that north of a quarter of a million Ukrainians had perished in this war. 257,000 is the figure that Colonel McGregor says Reznikov may have told the Americans. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. OK, well, let's uh, move back to the UK and defence matters. And well, offshore Windgate is what we're uh, titling this, uh, because, uh, well, it turns out that uh, perhaps offshore wind farms are not so great for uh, aerial defence uh, and certainly for detection of uh, incoming aerial threats. Uh, just to uh, so that everybody understands what the situation is uh, off the well, off the east coast of England at the moment, uh, the uh, blue and yellow dots there are all uh, current already established uh, wind farms uh, offshore uh, in some size or other, but nonetheless, they're already there. Now, of course, if you've got, uh, Brian, a spinning uh, wind turbine yeah. and lots of them sitting in the middle of the ocean there, that has an effect on radar. And so the UK government is, uh, is running a competition to try to mitigate the effects of this. So let's see what the government's saying. These offshore wind farm installations may adversely affect the quality of data obtained from the long range primary surveillance radars, which are the backbones of the UK's air defence detection capability. Given that the primary task of the Ministry of Defence is defend UK territory, any such de degradation of PSR capability will impact the production of the recognised air picture uh, and thus could reduce both the range and time available in which to identify and act on a potential aggressor. This is unacceptable for the nation's security. Uh, so on the, 20th, on the 27th of January uh, 2023, uh, DASA and the uh, Business uh, Industrial Strategy, Business Enterprise and Industrial Strategy, uh, hosted a webinar to test the program's vision with the wider market and provide the opportunity to inform the program. The scope of phase three is likely to support technology across three broad categories, radar, stealthy materials, alternative tracking-based solutions. So forget about radar as the third option, use something else. Stealthy materials, are we really considering the possibility of coating uh, wind turbines and stealthy materials and what would the effect of that be on radar? Uh, I think we could have a discussion with that with Alex and, and Brian in a second. But then the competition that the government is running is aimed at any technology provider within those three categories as well as original equipment manufacturers, onshore and offshore owner operators and developers who would be interested in collaborating with the technology providers as part of wind farm mitigation for air, air defense phase three. So. Uh, before we ask Alex, Brian, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, what we've got unfolding is madness when they say may adversely affect. Clearly, it is affecting. Otherwise, they wouldn't be going to this huge amount of time and effort to put out competitive tender. So somebody has made a big mistake that they didn't realize the impact of the wind farms on uh, long range detection. Now, of course, they realize that Russia completely outclasses the West, the UK, the US, it doesn't matter who, completely outclasses the West uh, with its long range attack missiles. Then all of a sudden we're beginning to realize that the uh, um, these uh, 
airborne warning radars are in a in a bigger mess than they thought and now they've woken up to the fact they've got problems with the windmills so are the blades scattering some form of radar signal that's possible so you've got spatter and you're not getting any clean returns of detection uh, but if they then cover the blades with some absorption material, you're going to end up with a black hole. So what we've got here is a disaster. It's incompetent and it incompetence and it falls in line, of course, with the demise of the services as a whole, which we're going to talk about in this news. I think we should also say for people who may be interested that, of course, the wind farms slaughter birds. On, on a huge scale because they simply get killed by the spinning blades. So these offshore farms are a nonsense and now it's impacting on the safety of the nation. Interesting. Uh, absolutely. And Alex, just to put this in perspective, I mean, we've got a number of wind farms offshore already. The aim of the government is to have something like 40 gigawatts of generating capacity by 2030 and then 70 gigawatts by 2040. So clearly what's there already is only a fraction of what's going to be there. Oh, a very small fraction, and we'll come to Ian Davis's new piece on that, which is already up on the website. Uh, he's calculating that there's orders of magnitude more to come if Britain is to make good on its pledge. Uh, the map you showed is particularly worrying to me with my old GCHQ hat on, uh, because the wind farm blobs that you showed go up as far as the Yorkshire coast. So that's just above the River Humber for the foreign viewers. That's the, the kind of large crack along the eastern coast of, of northern England. Just above there, you've got the Royal Air Force Base at Filingdales with the chief early warning radar against Russian heavy bombers, the backfires and the blackjacks and the bears. You've also got GCHQ station at Scarborough, which is integrated with the Royal Air Force and the other armed forces. And one of its chief functions is also detection of what Russian strategic air assets are up to. Uh, not a good sign, but it looks like the Department for Business, uh, Enterprise, Innovation and Skills uh, didn't bother to check with the Ministry of Defence at an early stage. Uh, indeed. Now, let's uh, move move on to another uh, hilarious topic, uh, and that's Balloon Gate. Um, so let's put an appropriate image on screen for Balloon Gate. And of course, this is the, uh, the Chinese balloon, which uh, has um, passed right over the top of the United States over the last few days. Apparently, there's another one which has uh, passed uh, over the Caribbean as well and, and Central America. Uh, but anyway, this, of course, resulted in all kinds of headlines. Uh, so here's Forbes. Trump, uh, right-wing Republicans urge U.S. government to shoot down suspected Chinese spying drone. Uh, here's the Daily Mail. Pentagon and city officials deny there was an explosion in the sky above Billings, Montana, where the Chinese spy balloon was spotted infiltrating U.S. airspace uh, after residents' video of a trail of smoke goes viral. Uh, so all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of uh, scenarios being pushed forward by all kinds of people, amplified by the mainstream press. Uh, here's uh, Action News, uh, ABC. So this is uh, Chinese balloon live updates. So they needed live updates for this with all kinds of footage and so on. Uh, and then finally, uh, we had uh, headlines like this. Biden considering plan to shoot down Chinese spy balloon over Atlantic. Uh, and indeed, that is in fact what happened. So the video footage everyone will have seen by now of the uh, uh, F-22 shooting down with a missile, uh, the spy balloon apparently uh, over the Atlantic, over shallow water so they can recover it, they, they claim. Uh, so there we go. Uh, they had apparently attempted to shoot it down with machine guns, uh, Brian, but uh, that, that didn't work terribly well. So they used uh, a, a, an air-to-air -air missile instead. Uh, Stars and Stripes here want to justify this by uh, discussing 
in a world of drones and satellites, why use a spy balloon? So I just thought we'd get an idea of this. Uh, balloons offer a few advantages over the use of satellites and drones, according to uh, James Rogers, who's an academic at Cornell uh, and the University of Southern Denmark. Uh, not only are they cheaper than launching satellites into space, but by operating within the bounds of the Earth's atmosphere close to the surface, they can obtain better quality images. Okay, I'm not sure how controllable they are, but anyway, uh, that's the claim. Uh, this was the uh, Chinese response uh, yesterday. China clearly requested that the US properly handle the matter in a calm, professional, restrained manner. The US insisted on using force, clearly overreacting uh, and seriously violating international practice. Uh, China will resolutely safeguard the legitimate rights and interests of the relevant enterprises. Uh, China reserves the right to make further necessary responses. Now, I'm just going to say, of course, it's not uh, just China that uses balloons uh, for weather or for surveillance, but uh, uh, here's uh, an example. Uh, Israeli surveillance balloon keeping Paris delegates safe. Uh, but of course, this is tethered to the ground. Uh, here's another one that's tethered to the ground. Uh, the Pentagon's next big uh, weapon, really big balloons, says Fortune. Uh, but there is, uh, the, in the US, they, they are using balloons that can apparently be navigated with solar panels and power supplies and all kinds of things, looking very similar to the Chinese one. Uh, this is Aerostar. Uh, they call it the thunderstorm, uh, or it seems to be attached to what they're describing, the thunderstorm operating system. Uh, we proudly offer Thunderstorm, a, a user-friendly interface that offers command and control coverage from anywhere in the world. This technology allows users to control and predict balloon flight path, monitor balloon performance, and display sensor intelligence in a single common operational picture. So the US certainly has apparently the uh, ability to navigate balloons, uh, at least they can work out which way the wind's blowing. But Alex, uh, is this really an escalation by the Chinese, do you think? I wouldn't rule it out. Um, it, it looks like the flight path is, took the balloon right over the Aleutian Islands, right up the chain. So uh, you'd have to ask, uh, with a view to what we were just talking about with Filingdales and the, the east coast of Britain, likewise, uh, Alaska plays host to US Air Force bases that are very involved in surveilling the Russian Far East from a strategic air point of view. Uh, no no less useful than, than ever, of course, now that uh, Chinese strategic assets have come into the picture. Uh, so perhaps the question is, why wasn't it shot down over the North Pacific? Uh, or even perhaps with some kind of NORAD um, uh, putting their heads together, shot down over a wild part of the Yukon, uh, if the Canadians had been up for that. So there are some, some possible gaps in the story. Um, I I'm not an expert in, in why the Chinese might want to do this just now, other than, if you'll pardon the fun, to fun the, to fly a balloon for future plans. Uh, I wonder what Mark has to say. Mark, have you any thoughts? Well, not a whole lot. I haven't paid real close attention. I know NASA has a lot of balloon usage. They're one of the largest buyers of helium in the world. And then, of course, the social media companies. Uh, I would wonder, like Alex is saying, um, why this wouldn't have been taken care of further away from Montana. And I would even go so far as to wonder whether it was really a Chinese balloon or, it, or, or is that a cover story for something else? It's a little early to tell in my mind. But there's a lot of unanswered questions, and I'm going to look at it a little more closely. Well, uh, we should say the Chinese aren't denying that it's their balloon. But my question really was whether this is something unusual. If if Israel, uh, the US, UK, undoubtedly the same, this or are we using them? we we see this type of thing where so something which is normal gets amplified by a headline. 
Well, against the background that the uh, uh, US military people are saying we're going to be, they, the US, will be at war with China by 2025, it's a useful way of ramping up the rhetoric. You could also say, though, of course, some sensitivity because the Japanese used fire balloons to attack America in the Second World War. So I think uh, it's an event that uh, has been blown up out of proportion. Well, let's uh, bring Alicia Cairns uh, on screen and see what she had to say. She, of course, is uh, the chairwoman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Uh, she said, but what we've now seen is that people working in China for TikTok hacked into European data, so it could be tracked down the source of a journalist, uh, because what TikTok does is it gives away the data that most of you think vulnerable, or that makes you most vulnerable, who you're friends with, uh, what are your interests, uh, and uh, what are the interests that you have or that you may not want publicly disclosed, who are you having private conversations with, the locations you go to. And so this is her response, Alex, to uh, to the, the Chinese balloon situation. And my, the first thing in my mind is, well, that equally applies to Facebook and to Twitter and to every other social media platform on the planet. And for, for her to, to use this quite so cynically in an attempt to, to ramp up anti-Chinese feeling, uh, again, another one banging war drums. Uh, yes, I wouldn't disagree with you there, Mike. Uh, of course, Facebook, Google, the whole nest of them have been in and out of uh, a revolving door to 10 Downing Street for years, as we've been covering, uh, as have the staff gone on to make uh, to, to get appointments, uh, either going on from the tech companies to government or vice versa. TikTok being Chinese owns uh, isn't quite as willing to do that. So perhaps there's a, a note of sourness there in, in Ms. Kearns's voice. Yeah. OK, well, let's uh, move on to Ukraine. And uh, we've got a little summary here to bring people up to speed. Uh, this is going back to Thursday last week. The Express getting very excited because it's talking about Russia mobilising 500,000 soldiers. What I think has become clear to the West is that the Russians have certainly uh, mobilized a very large number of their military. Some people are talking of figures of 700,000, and these are not uh, untrained co um, new conscripts. These are trained soldiers who've had previous training. So at the moment, it's very clear that Russia is not playing games over Ukraine. Against that background, we just remind people about Boris Johnson off on his own. Nobody knew who was controlling him when he went to uh, Ukraine and he's calling for fighter jets, although it's looking increasingly unlikely that uh, the US or anybody else is going to be providing F-16s to Ukraine because the only end for those planes supplied will be that they will be shot down. But here's the brutal reality of the fact that we don't really have any form of defence anymore. So the mail here, artillery regiments run out of artillery. British Army is stripped of heavy guns after Defence Chief pledged to give 30 working AS-90s to Ukraine. So we're now in the position where the military is simply being given away what's left of it to Ukraine. We don't have the weapons to fight. And there is some pushback amongst senior military people. But I would say to them, most of you are the people that allowed the uh, armed forces to be decimated over the previous 10, 15, 20 years. So um, it's all a bit late. Mm. But uh, this is the reality. Meanwhile, what is the British Army excited about? Well, apparently mental health. Uh, there's no fighting going on, but apparently we've got huge problems with mental health. 
in the armed forces, so the Ministry of Defence pushing out these tweets. And the other ongoing big issue is never mind, we haven't got any more, uh, we haven't got enough guns. We're desperately worried um, about the LGBT, LGBTQ agenda and uh, can we keep up to date with that? So against that background, uh, what's happening? Well, this is the big boast that came out over the last few days that we've got nine nations with no experience of the reality of war in Ukraine training young Ukrainians for the slaughter. Uh, come back to the Twitter post of the Ministry of Defence. We've got uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace uh, with Australian Richard Mulls, and uh, they went to see Australian defence personnel who are apparently in UK training young soldiers. And of course, you've covered that on the news as well. Um, so plenty of tweets coming about. Uh, Australia is the latest nation to join the UK-led training programme to train Ukrainian recruits on UK soil. Lots of uh, glamour pictures. But this was the image that I really found offensive. Um, here are the mates wandering along the streets. It's If they were holding hands, they would, of course, completed the full uh, LGBT agenda. But I wanted to put the real headline in. I, I just felt this is, this is really what we should be talking about. What was the dialogue? Well, of course it wasn't, but so we gave these innocent young Ukrainians a few weeks basic training and they're all slaughtered on the front a few weeks later. It's great fun, Richard, I must say. The cynicism of these two men parading, having fun while they send these young Ukrainians to their death, I find utterly appalling and offensive. And of course, they're smiling while they do it. So here's the Ministry of Defence in UK pushing out the propaganda as usual. And if we look down at the bottom of this intelligence update, it says while multiple alternative cross-country supply routes remain available to Ukrainian forces, Bakhmut is increasingly isolated. So this is described um, as though the Russians are having great trouble dealing with the Ukrainians. But the reality is that Zelensky's poured thousands of Ukrainian troops into the strategic position of Bakhmut and they have been killed in their thousands. And the city is effectively encircled by Russia, as, as we're going to see. So if we bring in this, the first thing to say is that the casualty rate for many of the units in Bakhmut is 80%. And of course, the majority of them dead by shelling and a very large number of them young recruits supposedly trained by the UK. But if we have a look at Bakhmut and put it into context, uh, the uh, brown reddish area on the right of that uh, picture uh, is showing the area controlled by Russia and the advance to the west, the uh, pinnacle there heading out to the northwest. And uh, Bakhmut is effectively uh, encircled. And the key thing which has happened over the last few days is that the Russians have now also taken control of the western highways into Bakhmut. And the thing for many people to remember is that to the west of these positions, the Ukrainian defence lines are much weaker. And there's been many cases of, of Ukrainian resistance crumbling over the last few days. So for the Ukrainians, a very serious situation. Um, if we have a look at another map from social media, but very accurate, you can see how Russia is pushing in on all these areas. And um, Bakhmut in the centre, 
the supply road, the M03, that's already been cut. And uh, the supply road to the west, which we've just uh, mentioned, that's also cut. And this just leaves one very minor supply road for the whole of the forces in Bakhmud. But that uh, minor road is under artillery control of the Russians. And if we come in from a different direction and we look up to the northeast of Bakhmud, uh, we can see that the Russian forces are now dealing with the uh, heavily fortified area of Krasnogora. And uh, this, from this position, the Russians are already move, moving up the line to the north-northeast to Zversk. So uh, a lot of progress on the front, but this is all denied by UK's Ministry of Defence. And meanwhile, in uh, Ukraine, uh, what can we see? Uh, well, of course, these teams are running around uh, grabbing, arresting, um, summonsing uh, young men to fight on the front. And from reports from Ukrainian sources, we now know that individuals like this, no previous military training, whether they're trained in Ukraine or the UK, if they're sent to Bakhmud and other areas of intensive fighting, uh, they are going to survive for a few hours or a few days. We're not even into weeks. So this is, uh, this is appalling stuff. And uh, Alex mentioned this. I'm using social media, but uh, this source and others has been highly accurate. So this is the report that uh, the armed forces of Ukraine have lost 157,000 dead, probably including 2,500 mercenaries, against the reality of Russian losses of about 18,500. And uh, if we look at uh, reports for Bakhmud, 1,500 Ukrainians lost over the past uh, four days just in Bakhmud itself. And uh, this was uh, also a report that was made apparently uh, between Zaluzny and the Americans, where it was admitted that 257,000 Ukrainian soldiers had died. Now, Colonel Douglas McGregor, American colonel, has been making very accurate reports on what's happening. And uh, this is the lie. The UK Ministry of Defence and the BBC continually say Ukraine's had minimal casualties and the Russian ca casualties have been huge. But the opposite is true. Ukraine's dead statistic is somewhere between 157,000 and 257,000. So if you grab a figure and you take 200,000, you're probably somewhere close. Um, so against that, horrific reality. Let's have a look at how British politicians, former politicians and ministers speak about the conflict. Um, just checking with you there, Sir Gerald, are you suggesting boots on, on the ground? I think that that is something that we now have to consider, Kay. Yes, I, I, I do. I feel that certainly if you were to put a NATO force in there, uh, that would be NATO uh, versus Russia. Uh, but Russia is the is the guilty party here. Russia has invaded an, another sovereign state. And uh, we have declared, everybody in the West has declared that uh, Ukraine has got to win, and we're doing a tremendous amount. Britain led the way under Boris Johnson in leading the, uh, uh, the support for Ukraine. But I do think we have to think very hard uh, where this is going, because at the moment what it's looking like is a stalemate uh, with uh, Russia just flattening whole parts of that, that sovereign country uh, like they did in Aleppo. 
Uh, they're a brutal regime. They lie through their teeth. And the West has got to decide um, that if it is going to support Ukraine, and Ukraine does have to win because if Ukraine does not win, where will Putin go next? We have to decide exactly how we're going to do this. And I think just edging slowly, bit more here, bit more there, is not the answer. So former Defence uh, Minister Gerald uh, Howarth, get the name right there, pontificating from his uh, safe residence about going to war with Russia. Madness, I'm going to say, in my opinion, the man is a fool. Uh, let's have a look at realistic comment, uh, commentary on the war uh, from uh, former uh, American Marine Scott Ritter. You know, one of the things, the discussions I want to throw at you, and I know you're very familiar with this, and this is a discussion. Oh, my gosh, NATO wants to jump in. NATO wants to put troops on the ground. NATO wants to. And I looked and I'm like, well, the Russians got a lot of guys there and they're like building up their military to a million and a half people here. Like they're preparing to be able to defend their border with massive numbers. And NATO, the more I read about the UK and Germany, what I see is that NATO's military has like dwindled away to barely a shell of what it was in the 80s. So is NATO in a position physically, militarily, to get involved in a conflict on the Russian border, Scott Ritter? No, not at all. Zero, zero op potential, zero capability, um, zero sustainability. Uh, they're not trained properly. They're not equipped properly. Uh, they don't have the logistics uh, capabilities. Um, uh, simply put, it would be like leading lambs to a slaughter. Uh, the, I mean, the British can sit there and, you know, I mean, who's the old saying that if somebody speaks to you in a British accent, they have to be correct just because they sound like <laughs> uh, So, you know, we can get the British general, I sell chopper. The British army will, of course, fall in in well-disciplined lines and advance forward smartly and, we, and you'll all die because there is no British army anymore. It's literally a joke, a joke. Um, the American military, uh, better trained, better equipped, um, no sustainability. I mean, that's what people have to understand that, uh, you know, an army brigade by itself um, you know, is not capable of fighting the Russian army. Um, and the Russians have an army. Uh, this is not the 200,000 peacetime contingent that uh, initiated the special military operation. We're nearly a year into this. Uh, Russia has mobilized not just reservists, but also its defense industry and, frankly speaking, the nation. Uh, you know, it, a military tends to do better when they have support of the people behind them. And uh, I think we can say unequivocally that the uh, Russian people are solidly behind uh, this effort which gives political leadership a lot more flexibility. You see, if you're, if you're trying to fake out a population by winning a quick and easy war, and then the quick and easy war doesn't turn out to be quick and easy, um, things, you know, bad things can happen at home. Right now, the Russians, notice who's, who's talking about the clock. Who keeps pointing to the calendar? Everybody but the Russians. You haven't seen the Russians point to the calendar once. They haven't told you anything about their timelines. All they say is, we have... Um, our stated objectives of demilitarization and denazification, and those remain the same. Everybody else says, Russia needs a quick fix. Russia has to go now. Russia has to do it. Russia doesn't have to do anything except when, which is what they're doing. So, Alex, when you uh, put those two video clips together, uh, we've got one appalling, and I'm going to say ignorant man pontificating from the warmth and comfort, presumably, of his own home. And we've got the reality of a former... Uh, marine and intelligence officer. The Russians at the moment are controlling the battlefield, but nobody is calling for an end to the fighting. Fair comment, Brian. Uh, Sir Gerald Howarth was the junior minister 
at the Ministry of Defence when the Strategic Defence and Spending Review, SDSR 2010, came out, and it fell to him to explain why Britain had chopped its last two aircraft carriers, the Ark Royal and HMS Illustrious, and why it had scrapped its uh, uh, airborne detection platforms, the Nimrods, without which you cannot uh, wage uh, the kind of level of warfare that we would be involved in if we got uh, into direct shooting with the Russians. You would need that broad sweep control of the oceans to bring your troops anywhere near Russia without with any kind of safety. It's not just Scott Ritter, who I know is not everyone's cup of tea, despite his accuracy, uh, who is saying this. Uh, I met a, a J2, so a, an, an intelligence officer uh, in Britain, Britain's NATO structure a couple of years ago, who said that Russia would wipe out all that the British army could put on the battlefield in five minutes. And people might you know, treat that with incredulity. But this is a very sober minded man uh, that is known uh, in such places as um, as, as the Ministry of Defence and equivalent European capitals. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Well, we could discuss a lot more, but we'd better move on with today's news. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and uh, your membership would be very welcome. You'd be welcome in the community, uh, but please do also share, uh, can pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop. Uh, there's uh, a slide uh, interposed here, uh, uh, well, I couldn't resist but to put this one in because we had a little email from Jane who um, thanked us. You made our day. And this is because they were watching UK Column at home. And uh, up came a tweet. I think, Alex, you picked this one up. Um, so this is our viewers responding to the fact that we're picking up material that they're pushing out. So Jane and your husband from UK Column, well done. Keep at it. Uh, and uh, well, do share as much as you possibly can. Now, Alex, a couple of mentions here. First of all, uh, Mendip D District Council. This is a district council in uh, Somerset in the southwest of England. I do not know the case of Emma Shaw, uh, but she has shared on social media, and it's noteworthy from the 23rd of January, that she has been told by her local council uh, that they have no duty to house her because although she's a British citizen, They've done a balance of probability, which they call on the facts in, uh, in local government assessment, and decided that she's not habitually resident in the British Isles or the common travel area, which is the is Ireland and the, the, um, the other uh, self-governing islands in the British Isles. Um, it's odd, isn't it? Because people get to the top of the queue uh, precisely because they've come from outside the British Isles. Uh, to look for houses if they can claim refugee status. Uh, but denizens uh, of Britain, uh, which is, of course, what you remain if you're a citizen who, who leaves, um, uh, they don't get that, uh, that treatment. Uh, let's move on also to something that's been spotted in the Western German state of Rheinland-Pfalz, the Palatinate historically. Uh, a third of Germans are continuing to uh, refuse to notify the authorities of the value of their houses. Here in the Netherlands too, we have this tax on already mortgage-free or bought outright properties coming up, a property value tax as a way of obviously forcing people out of the homes they own outright. Uh, but the Germans, even in this wealthy and conservative part of the country, are saying no to this. Uh, and so that's been, that's been spotted in the local press. Uh, an Australian viewer writes that property duplicate titles in the state of Western Australia will become null and void in August this year. Uh, this is part of a trend that we see in England as well. Scotland already has a, 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 has had for centuries a, a register of properties, a continental style one, but title in common law 
is being abolished. I suspect the USA will be slower in this regard and many states will hold out. But Australia, within the common law world, often leads the way in statutorily declaring things null and void from the past. All titles in Western Australia will be digital as of August this year, which of course means that with the click of a button, if you're a, a dissident, uh, somebody who doesn't like you can make your title over uh, to someone else. Uh, Alex, uh, just before we move on, can I just ask you a question about that? Is it actually lawful for something which is uh, established in common law uh, to be overridden by statute in this way? No, uh, it's often claimed that that is the case. Uh, but obviously not. And you know, if you look at the first principles of common law, I know I'll get people uh, peeved at me for saying that because it's taught in law schools that statutes can override common law. But that's not how our legal system was uh, was put together. And nobody waved a flag one day and said, uh, henceforth, statutes override common law for all that it is taught. Uh, more on this is uh, uh, that it's going to become very expensive for homeowners. This is more of a Germany and EU issue than it has come to Britain yet. But if you own a badly insulated property, the Germans are much keener on this than Britain at the moment, you're going to have to modernize it and it may cause you to lose your historic home. That's been reported by Der Spiegel. And if people want to find that, it's on YouTube, it'll be in the show notes on AI Financial. And the title of that video is Seven Years Until Expropriation, EU Draft Law Threatens Property Owners. Uh, moving on to mentions of what we've got on our website. I trailed this a moment ago. Ian Davis has written a uh, piece for us, which I filed under defense because it is about whether we're at war or not. It follows on from his recent article on sustainable development. He gets into the detail here of how Britain is still very much bound up with Rosatom, the Russian nuclear energy uh, giant, and uh, is intending to fund its green development or f facilitate it through that. And that graphic, of course, is British, uh, the British government's own 10-point green recovery plan. It is really a nonsense, part two to follow. Um, an engineer without a background in climatology asks some intelligent questions as well in a piece which is in the comments section towards the bottom of the homepage. Uh, this is Keith Meller. He's asking whether we have got climate and the so-called greenhouse gases, methane and carbon dioxide, back to front. He's looking at it through the lens of water vapour. Uh, quite a complicated article, but he does his best to set it out for lay people as well. So I think that that should be shared for discussion. He says several times he's not being categorical, but he's not convinced on the data uh, that these gases act as greenhouse gases. Now, on to an interesting thing which has happened in the last uh, couple of days, in fact, in the world of, of, of common law. There has been something of a breakthrough. Many people will know that Neil Oliver on GB News does a Saturday monologue every week. And this time, uh, in fact, he, he also mentioned the uh, forthcoming coronation of King Charles in May as the reason uh, why he was going to talk about this now and, and questions at, about, uh, at, at some point whether, whether it was possible for Charles to... Uh, uh, to uh, swear the coronation oath uh, while still uh, allied with uh, foreign uh, powers, such as the World Economic Forum. But here he's talking about the place of juries and common law uh, in the legal system. Let's have a couple of minutes play of this. Any government that empowers itself to write legislation and also to impose the punishment for breaching that legislation is a tyranny. Any people that submits to the idea that the government both makes the legislation and enforces it is a people living under a dictatorship. This power, this absolute power of the people is wielded via the jury. Generations of people in this country have been miseducated into overlooking this power. But the undeniable fact is that every jury has the power to judge the very justice of the law. 
When a jury hears a trial, even if it's proven beyond doubt that legislation, a law, has been broken, the jury may still set the accused free. Indeed, if trial by jury is being exercised as defined by the Constitution, even one juror finding the accused not guilty must result in a not guilty verdict. If you listen to this and think the power of the jury is awesome, that is because it truly is. And that's why we must never allow any here today and gone tomorrow government to try and persuade us otherwise. Every day that passes when we allow our government and our judiciary to blind us to that awesome truth is another day closer to abject tyranny and to the rule of despots. I mentioned King Charles. If we do, in fact, live still in a constitutional monarchy, then the constitutional monarch must swear an oath to protect the rights of the people, not the rights of parliament, not of the government, but the people against all comers. For more than a thousand years, our constitutional monarchs, Queen Elizabeth II included, have sworn also to protect our national borders. Our democracy is founded upon the unquestioned, unchallenged sovereignty of the people. The monarch swears to protect our liberties without exception. If anyone, anyone tells you that our constitution, founded upon Magna Carta 1215, has been set aside or superseded, is simply and profoundly wrong. Here's the thing, and here's how we win the war. Either we live in a democracy in the form of a constitutional monarchy, or we don't. If we don't, then Parliament better at least have the decency to tell us so, and furthermore to explain when and how that happened. We are free people and sovereign. We're not granted that freedom by Parliament, but by the bedrock of our constitution, indeed by the universe itself. That constitution is much older than Magna Carta, which was only a 1215 restatement of what was already true and understood and made real by the much older common law. I've said this before and I'll keep saying it until the silence is overwhelmed and we begin the long task of remembering that we cannot be told what to do by government. Well done, Neil Oliver. And of course, he's been working up to this in his own study and his own rhetoric. Uh, and he's been taking the advice uh, and uh, excellent judgment of William Keat uh, in this process, who has schooled him in a lot of this material. Um, without any sense of competition, but just to underline that we've been working towards this as a constitutionalist movement for a long time. And I'm sure Mark will be laughing at us here because we're so, so far behind the Americans in this regard. But we're getting there, Mark. Um, let's just have a look at what happened in 2016 uh, when yours truly gave one of the keynote speeches at the British Constitution Group's talk uh, conference in Winchester. I'm particularly talking here about that time which we could already anticipate when we will be preparing for King Charles's coronation, one of the elements of which, of course, is the popular acclaim of the king, uh, that he is our uh, accepted monarch, not just uh, the legitimate heir and having fulfilled the oath, but whether we find him a fit and proper person, given what we know of his allegiances and mindset to reign over us. So here's what I said at Winchester in 2016. Her Majesty is not long more for this world. She's 90 years old. Many people want to honour her for the rest of her reign for what we, some of us think is uh, having put a lot of brakes on what, what would otherwise have been a, a lot more evil. Others are deeply disappointed in her, but I think we can all agree that when she's called home, there will be an unmissable opportunity for us not to acclaim her heir and successor, although he be according to law, and although he sign and approve all the oaths, that we say with the Israelites of old, to your tents, O Israel. That was the cry in Hebrew, la'aholecha, meaning go home. Don't give any legitimacy to this coronation ceremony. 
I suggest that that's what we do and that we use the words of the Israelites of old and say that we have no proportion, no portion nor inheritance in the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. I think that we need national repentance and I think that we need to throw off that house. And I think we need a second element in the spirit of 1215 and 1648 and 1688, and that is a new peace treaty with whoever the new sovereign will be. And based on the experience of history, because these peace treaties are cumulative and build in the knowledge that we've built up over the centuries of how abuses are perpetrated, I think there needs to be a new element in a new peace treaty before a new sovereign from a new house is appointed to rule us. Not it's not sufficient anymore to undertake that we're going to be ruled by our laws and customs because we have seen that international law and royal prerogative have been misused woefully since the enemy got a chance to do so through this treaty-based system. So I suppose, and I propose, that we will need to put in that treaty that juries will be told before every trial that they, must, that they may and must nullify unconstitutional statutes not in accordance with our common law. I also believe we need term limits. Thank you. So you notice what got the applause of that crowd, didn't it? It was jury nullification that got the applause. Uh, which, of course, makes people's eyebrows uh, raise sometimes. But jury nullification is the jury doing what it very much did, for example, during the James Stewart tyranny uh, and refusing a judge's direction to find people guilty that they know did nothing wrong uh, in the William Penn trial, which is also American heritage, of course, because Penn is the founder of Pennsylvania, one of the key, well, the keystone state, as it's, as it's well, well known to be. Um, this is not wacky stuff. This used to be taught all across the land in, in schools. And uh, a great amount of interest has flown from this. I won't play a, a clip of this, but I'll show it on screen. It's uh, William Keat talking to Richard Bobes, uh, a, a, just, uh, a deservedly quickly growing channel on YouTube, which Richard has entitled, This is Big. That's the name he's given to this interview. Here, Will Keat, and pardon me, it was it was him who talked about uh, Charles's uh, allegiances to the WEF. It wasn't Neil Oliver, but uh, people should listen very carefully to this. Will is uh, only making perfectly rational, uh, lawyerly points, though he doesn't claim to be a, a legal uh, expert as such. He's, he's he's one who studies as a, as a friend of the common law. Uh, he's uh, he's noticed this uh, that uh, that juries historically have got all the powers that stop abuses. Uh, people who've dev devoted their lives. Uh, to the study of abuses in courts. Dr. Richard Cordero in the USA, for example, point out judges will throw out evidence as inadmissible in order to find the innocent guilty and vice versa. Uh, uh, will Keats says specifically in this interview, um, that's uh, it's in, in his sources, uh, that's also part of the judge's purview, the jury's purview. They are the true judges uh, in the courtroom. Now, we could go on for hours, but we don't have the time. The point is that this is not something that's been done in a corner. Uh, that juries have rights, that judges are afraid of them in any common law jurisdiction. In various US states and Ireland, people have been uh, arrested, I would say, unlawfully by police or by court staff uh, for going near a court and saying to people who might be jurors, did you know that you can find people innocent when the judge directs you to find them guilty? Uh, the US has a whole association for this, the Fully Informed Juries Association, FIJA, which we'll, Will mentioned in that interview. Um, but what I wanted to bring on people, people onto is this. We have a long history of dealing with these things. People often reproach us for not being up to date and not sharing the greatest, latest thing. But we've been on this for a long time. Go to A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, which you'll find under series in our menu on ukcolumn.org. Episode two is devoted to common law with much said about juries and jury nullification. 
which is what led me to say all those years ago in Winchester uh, that that's the kind of reading of the rights to the jury that should be something that the, the king signs up to uh, at his coronation, that he undertakes that people who judge in his name as jurors uh, will know and not have it hidden from them, that they can overturn uh, wretched laws. Uh, the final part of this segment, though, is that things haven't gone well uh, for all. Uh, well, actually, just one one side in slide in between that yet. A viewer has asked, How's, has Charles been crowned yet? How, how can acts receive royal assent? Deep rabbit hole there. Short answer, uh, the coronation is very important for the coronation oath, but the system of government regards him as crowned from the moment of uh, the predecessor's demise. Uh, so I'm afraid that you, can't, you don't have a legal leg to stand on but by, in saying that the crown uh, hasn't been put on Charles's head yet, therefore he's not king, that won't fly. But his coronation oath is absolutely the cornerstone of all legitimacy in government, and reluctantly government departments will admit that in protracted correspondence, uh, so that the, the parliament is absolutely not sovereign, just as Will says and just as Neil says. And another uh, viewer has pointed out this, Queen Elizabeth at her coronation left out an uh, undertaking to govern according to statutes agreed on in Parliament. So, Mike, uh, perhaps the, Queen, the late Queen was also a conspiracy theorist in deliberately not saying that she would govern in accordance with statutes. She was quite right not to do so. She put common law uh, on top of the pyramid, not at the bottom. Uh, but here's the disgruntlement that's come. This gentleman, Dr. Matthew Sweet, uh, is uh, a Doctor Who enthusiast who happens to be an Oxford graduate and who happens to um, have a cushy number as a freelancer for the BBC uh, in its free thinking podcast and for The Economist, one of the house journals of the globalist school. And uh, here he is passive aggressively uh, calling the dogs of Ofcom uh, on Will Keat. Uh, and on Neil Oliver and on his uh, broadcasting host, GB News, for what he calls a hoax text of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Uh, what is his evidence? That Will Keat uh, came on and circulated so-called Rothschild conspiracy theories. I'm, I'll be interested in getting Vanessa on after these couple of slides because she has also had a nasty accusations of anti-Semitism slung at her in the past. Uh, so Will Keat can't come on because he writes for a website where someone mentioned Rothschild. That's interesting, isn't it? Here, says Dr. Sweet, is some stuff from the website in question. David Icke, how naughty they let David Icke write for them. Uh, they quoted uh, Colonel Vladimir Klachkov talking about problems with the COVID narrative. Uh, and that allows him to use uh, scare quotes around the phrase constitutional expert when talking about uh, Will Keat. Further down the chain, here he is uh, telling Will Keat off for talking about the Rhodes-Milner Group. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, Mark's uh, long-term reporting beat, the Royal uh, Institute of International Affairs, or Chatham, Chatham House. Uh, very naughty of Will, apparently. This is, this is all anti-Semitism. He's talking about 5G. Look, there's Patrick Henningsen, Eva Bartlett, Peter Ford, Professor Piers Robinson, uh, those who have the bear the brunt of this opposition, usually. Uh, they're being uh, uh, shot at again here by Dr. Matthew Sweet, who, as I say, freelances for the BBC. Uh, that the worst thing he did apparently was to say that Chatham House are the real string pullers. Uh, and at the end of the, 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 the chain, uh, he uh, impugns uh, Ronald Bernard here, uh, because Ronald Bernard had the temerity to say that he was in invited to sacrifice children uh, at a party of financiers. And that apparently we should be listening to this guy. Well, in my own right as Alex Thompson, you very much should be listening to this guy, Ronald Bernard. I've had him in my living room several times, and he's told me nothing but the truth uh, in my uh, continued estimation. But uh, Vanessa, uh, you often Vanessa's with... not here, Alex. Vanessa, Vanessa left us after her segment. I beg your pardon. I wasn't aware that she'd left us. Perhaps we could throw it over to Mark then. 
<laughs> Interesting. Yeah, um, boy, you covered a lot of things there. Um, I would back up a little bit about uh, property rights and titles and um, uh, juries and nullification. Uh, I wanted to comment about that. I was waving my hand about that a bit. Uh, in America, uh, what they do is they're trying to avoid jury trials with house repossessions. Your house is already paid for. You don't pay your property taxes. They try and uh, uh, foreclose on your house. Or your house is still under a mortgage, but they invent a, uh, a paper trail where they claim that you're in arrears to your mortgage when you actually aren't. And they aggressively try and get your properties away from you for other schemes they have in mind. And the judges run, uh, uh, go towards summary judgment in the courts and try to avoid jury trials altogether. And just hundreds of thousands of homes are repossessed and foreclosed on um, throwing Americans out of their homes every year uh, as the courts and the media are all corrupted, as they avoid juries altogether, they, they go for summary judgment. In many ways, they, they do it unlawfully. And so there's a huge repo foreclosure racket going on in the United States where they, they even invent the paperwork um, in a fraudulent way, and they use digital scanning to scan people's signatures and put people's signatures on documents where they never signed it. And it's a huge racket um, that I've been studying off and on with a guy named Mickey Paletta in Pennsylvania and uh, looking at how uh, paperwork is fraudulently generated, how debts are fraudulently uh, created or expanded, and how this whole racket works. So much could be said, but uh, avoiding juries and going for summary judgment and just oodles of fraud is the name of the game. Yeah. Okay, look, look, Alex, we've got to move on, I'm afraid, but uh, thank you very much for that, Mark. Now, we're going to move on to vaccines. And just before we uh, go back to Mark, I just wanted to mention, uh, for those that didn't notice, uh, we were talking about this role that had been advertised by the UK Health Security Agency. We were talking about this on Friday's news program, Vaccine Supply Operations Lead. Uh, well, no sooner was that discussed uh, than uh, the job was withdrawn. So at this point, we have no idea why the job was, was withdrawn. Uh, the UK HSA still hasn't replied to my uh, request for comment. Uh, and uh, well, I would be surprised if they do, but uh, let's let's wait and see if they do. Um, but uh, uh, where does that take I us? I think then? Alex has just got a couple where we're leading into more uh, coverage on vaccines. But I think this Newsweek one is yours, Alex. Is that correct? It is. And I know we're uh, upping the tempo at this point in the news. I'll just put on the record then that Newsweek has carried an opinion piece by a medical student. Uh, it's time that we, for the scientific community to admit we were wrong about COVID and it cost lives. And through an error in my slide, I don't have the author's name to hand, but it will be in the show notes. Um, this is the conclusion of it. So perhaps if I, uh, here we are, Kevin Bass is the uh, student in question. Uh, and he writes that we did not pro uh, properly appreciate that preferences determine how scientific expertise is used. We made science a team sport. That made it no longer science. It became us versus them. And they, that's the public, responded the only way anyone might expect them to, by resisting. Our emotional response and our ingrained partisanship prevented us from seeing the full impact of, on, on our, of our actions on the people we are supposed to serve. And uh, a final piece from him, we crafted policy for the people without consulting them. 
if our public health officials had led with less hubris, the course of the pandemic in the United States might have had a very different outcome with far fewer lost lives. Uh, Newsweek has seen fit to publish this by a medical student, a hopeful sign. Yes, and Mark, that brings us on then to uh, Dr. Albert Bourla. Yes, he spoke in Chicago this past Thursday, February 2nd. Uh, the Economic Club of Chicago, along with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and many other think tanks and groups, I'm constantly monitoring them. And they had the illustrious Mr. Borla speak. He noted he was raised in a Jewish minority family in Greece, and he's trained as a veterinarian, he noted. He told a moderator, and he worked in a Pfizer veterinary wing for a while before moving up the ladder. Uh, before we get on to some video clips that I understand we'll probably be showing, there he is direct, or, uh, addressing the Economic Club of Chicago the 2nd of February. Uh, here's a little bit of his philosophy, his worldview. He said the link between a healthy citizenry and a healthy economy is, is vital, something really important to point out. And yes, the business community should be actively engaged, quote unquote. And companies such as Pfizer need to provide a healthy environment for their employees and to reach out beyond their uh, workplace and invest in our communities, quote unquote. And what we decide will have consequences for generations to come, quote unquote. And he went on to say that his favorite philosopher is Aristotle and that health is a matter of choice, quote unquote. That quote was attributed to Aristotle. And then he went on to say, Mr. Borla, in that spirit, I think we have a choice to make. The business community can decide that someone else should worry about public health, or and we can ignore the indisputable link between public health and prosperity. And he, he mentioned that um, American exceptionalism across industries is a goal of his company, uh, providing health care and a healthy environment for their workforce and the greater community, in other words, all the people in the world. Or he said, we can accept and indeed welcome the corporate responsibility that we have as employers to be forces for good in the workplace and in society by focusing on the critical issue of public health. And we need, need to use our position as employers to provide a healthy environment for our employees and invest in our communities, as I noted. And he went on to, he went on to add, I believe we are at an inflection point in society that will have consequences for generations to come. So with all due respect to Aristotle, I don't think there's a choice really, he went on to say, whether big business or small, or pharmaceutical companies, or banks, or universities, manufacturers, even nonprofits, we are all somehow in the healthcare biz, he said. Every one of us who employs people can make a difference. And this, this gives you a little bit of his outlook on things. I'll add a little bit more. Because without robust public health, there cannot be the economic opportunity a country needs to maintain its position in the world. People cannot produce if they cannot work. So a lot of this is tied to his idea of the work state, the idea of that the main goal of public health is to have a productive workforce. It's very much siloed in that area. And he went on to cite some statistics. The IMF global GDP dropped by 3.9% from 2019 to 2020. Uh, that's a pretty huge uh, uh, change, he said. And uh, that's pretty much uh, his outlook on things. I'm just kind of going through this. I think from here we can listen to the video clips 
and it will round out uh, the table I just got done setting on his comments. While 50% is determined by social and economic factors on a person's physical environment where they live, or to say it differently, your zip code is a better predictor of your health than your genetic code. This is why the effort to ensure good health must go beyond the words of a workplace. For companies, it starts there, of course, in the workplace. But it must expand to include partnership, partnerships with public health departments to share and deliver accurate information, tools, resources people need, and to take a good, hard look at where there are gaps in healthcare delivery and how we can work together to close them. That requires all of us in the private sector to think differently. I know public and private partnerships are not always easy. Companies and public health departments have different ways of working, different priorities sometimes, and different areas of expertise. But this is a good thing, because there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to public health. We can learn from each other as long as we remember that we are fighting the same enemy. And I have found throughout my life that there is nothing more unifying than a common enemy. That's why grandparents and grandchildren get along so well. <laughs> <coughs>
Florida, the state of Florida, didn't think that young children needed the vaccines, but I, Albert Borla, believe that's wrong. So actually, he has taken more or less a one-size-fits-all approach, uh, kind of relegating everything else to a secondary or supplemental category. But um, I don't know if you wanted to show another video clip, or was that the only one you're going to show? Well, no, I, I got the second one here. I think we should play it because you get a deeper insight into this man as he chuckles at his own joke. It's you guys' call. Go ahead if you want to want to do that. Let's roll it. Companies are already engaging. Bank of America, for example, recently partnered with the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, American Cancer Society, and the University of Michigan School of Public Health to launch an initiative to advance health outcomes to black, Hispanic, Latino, Asian American, and Native American communities in 11 cities, including Chicago. Partnerships with public health entities unlock opportunities for not only employees, but for communities as a whole. And that ultimately is the key to a healthy economy. The good news is that this all takes place against a backdrop of an exciting scientific renaissance driven by previously unimaginable advancements in biology that we are having right now and technology that will come together to produce solutions of great scale. With a strengthening innovation ecosystem, we expect a dramatic impact on human health, where we can hopefully cure many currently incurable conditions, transform others into manageable chronic diseases, and be better prepared for future pandemics. Yeah, so there you have it. You get a little bit better view and you don't hear this much because the, the Chicago media, as far as I can tell, the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, the TV stations, there might have been a couple advance announcements that he was going to be in town, but I didn't even find those. Uh, it was hard enough just to find the YouTube uh, presentation on this, but there was no uh, media coverage. So it looks like UK Column is virtually alone in even reporting on this and giving an objective view of this man's outlook on things. Um, he's making it sound pretty rosy. He's not talking about the uh, trials that um, were carried out at Stanford on very young children and a lot of the problems that reportedly arose out of those trials for the backs and um, uh, all the myriad uh, uh, yellow card data and bears data that's been posted on adverse reactions and deaths that evidently have been linked to the vaccines, at least in some cases. He's making it sound all very innovative, all very uh, optimistic. and uh, But it just gives you an idea that Bank of America and entities like that are no longer siloed, as the globalists like to say, that they don't have these siloed functions. They don't have their uh, specialized functions as much as they now collaborate, public-private partnerships. Some call this the real definition of fascism when government and big corporations uh, uh, collaborate like this and collude. And so it just gives you a view that you don't hear very often of where Borla's mind is at on all this. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, viewers can uh, make up their own mind what they think of it. But it raises a lot of questions and it gives us a lot of insights. So, yeah, Mark, thank you very much for that. I know that you, you've, other, you've some other material uh, to do with health. 
um, which uh, we had lined up for today's news. I'm sorry, we're going to have to hold that uh, because we're just about out of time. But thank you very much for bringing those clips to us. It's fascinating to see you know, what is in the mind of that man. And many uh, people in the uh, comment, uh, the chat box for UK column have picked up on uh, my reaction to him talking about the grandparents. And they said, well, of course, what, what this man wants to do is break the bond between the parents and the children, the grandparents and the children. So anybody can be coming along and saying the child is going to be vaccinated. And that's what happens because there's nobody to protect the child. Let's leave it there. We'll come on to um, a, a little bit of the health stuff in extra time. Yeah. But, uh, Alex, just uh, just one final uh, one final slide here. Uh, yes. Uh, and finally, we leave you with late breaking news that a German spy balloon has been detected over China. Uh, for those listening in audio only, it's a hot air balloon in the shape of a giant tankard of German beer. From Munich, But That would be the place, which, yeah. of course, is the base of the BND2, or used to be. <laughs> of course, those that, that style of beer glass, um, Alex, had very thick, has very thick glass. And I would imagine that the... Uh, American uh, missiles will be bouncing off, possibly. Possibly. Anyway. We'll leave it there. I think yeah. we should. Thank you very much to everybody for joining us, wherever you are in the world. Uh, big thank you for everybody who is supporting the UK column. Our intention in 2023 is to grow and expand. And we will be telling you more about that in due course. See Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.